welcome to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now, podcasting from the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center in Chicagoland, here are your hosts, Ed Stetzer and Daniel Yang. Welcome to the Sets of Church Leaders podcast, where we're helping Christian leaders navigate and lead through the cultural issues of our day. My name is Daniel Yang, the director of the Church Multiplication Institute, and we're happy to have with us today Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor. Karen is research professor of English and Christianity and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. She's also the author of several books and gives frequent lectures and talks on her work. Karen has been active in the pro-life movement for several decades, and we're talking with her today about how the church can move forward well now that Roe has been overturned. But first, we want to remind you that you can check out extended portions of some of our interviews at churchleaders.com plus. And if you're enjoying our interviews, it would help if you left us a review. And now before we hear from Karen, let's go to Ed Setzer, Editor-in-Chief of Outreach Magazine and the Executive Director of the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center. So welcome to kind of a breaking edition of the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast. We're always here trying to help Christian leaders navigate through the cultural issues of our day. And of course, on everyone's mind is the Supreme Court ruling. And um, and now we're having this conversation, how do we move forward uh, now with this uh, with this Supreme Court ruling, with now uh, Roe overturned, uh, with on the Dobbs ruling, and more? Um, what does that look like? And okay, so Karen, Thanks for joining us in, uh, from your home in rural Virginia with your uh, always this idyllic site with your dogs in the background and everything else. So so thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And they are there. We don't know if they'll be quiet or not, but we'll see. We'll find out. This, so this is, you know, this is a significant moment for the pro-life movement for, and yet at the same time, I think there's, I think there are a lot of people, it's not what a lot of people think it is or think it means um, when because it, there's still, you know, 50 states, and you know, the state where I live just has some some radical uh, laws that they would say to protect uh, a woman's right to a woman's right to choose, um, and so now we we end up in a post row world post row world with a patchwork and lots of work to be done. Before we before we get there, let's start with how 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 have you been involved in the pro life movement? Share a little bit about that. Yeah, well, I became involved back in the late 80s, um, which is, yes, a long time ago. And it's interesting as I think about how um, how the world and even abortion itself has changed. I mean, when you and I became involved, abortion, you know, Roe had been the law of the land for quite a while. And in the 80s, the abortion rate was so high that one, almost one in three pregnancies were ending in elective abortion, which, which is just an astronomical number. So when I entered into the pro-life movement and became passionate as an activist and wanting to overturn Roe, but sort of not really thinking it would ever happen. It was just so entrenched in our culture. I mean, abortion just had a hold on our culture. Um, and it still does, really. It still is something that we have built our whole society around, this expectation that an unwanted or crisis pregnancy can just simply end in abortion. And now here we are in this world where we have a whole new world of opportunity and the possibility to to change not only the culture, but to change the way we think about unwanted pregnancies and unborn children. And it's, a, it's a, an exciting challenge, I think. Yeah, I think there still is a significant challenge before us, but so much, I mean, 30 years, the sonogram has changed so much. I mean, the the idea that you can actually see, and, and and again, even to the point where there was an article a few years ago 
like saying the sonogram was a bad thing because it was, you know, pushing people back on their views on uh, abortion, pushing people back into the past. Um, but the reality is, in the current situation, states have gone different ways. So depending upon where you are right now, uh, the laws in your state are actually uh, perhaps aligned with what a, a Roe v. Wade standard would be, which mm -hmm. put the United States in, in league with, uh, well, seven countries in total that had these extreme abortion laws, including including China, North Korea, and, and Canada, the U.S., and others. Um, and, and, and yet now, it's state by state by state. So first, let's go back to the, the leaking of the, of the opinion first. Um, you know, what was your reaction to that, um, indicating that Roe would be overturned? And uh, what do you think now in this moment? Well, of course, in some ways, none of this was a surprise. We knew about the decision that the court had agreed to hear. And we knew, of course, that uh, former President Trump had appointed a number of conservative justices in part to fulfill his promise to uh, to appoint pro-life um justices to the court. And so we kind of knew this was coming. Um, but at the same time, when I first heard news of the leak, I still, I don't know, I still couldn't believe it. Um, I had journalist friends who tend to be liberal and pro-choice who'd been telling me for a while that they thought Roe would be overturned. And I just kind of thought, you know, this is a liberal talking point. They're trying to rally the troops and trying to rouse um, the pro-choice side to, to raise money and to, to um, motivate action the way we all do it when we're involved in in um, issues that we care about, and so it almost and seemed like it wouldn't happen. Um, and yet, at the same time, for all of these years, and even some of the things that I've written about, you know, I was convinced, even if I wouldn't live to see it, that abortion would eventually be seen for the barbarism and the injustice that it is. Um, and just simply overturning Roe versus Wade won't do that alone. But we know that the law is a teacher. The law does cultivate attitudes and opinions and values and even forms our imagination. So if we do come to a place where more and more states protect the lives of the unborn and support women then who are in these pregnancies, then I think we will have the world that all of us really dreamed of, even if we didn't know it would really happen. Yeah, I, I think 100 years from now, I often say 100 years from now, people will look back with just horror at how we treated right. the unborn in the last few decades. And so so we can uh, rejoice that a what was bad law, what was mm -hmm. um, what was used to create uh, just extreme approaches to, uh, and, and, uh, to abortion. And again, we can rejoice that now that's not in place, but we still have a I mean, the, the backlash in culture is mm -hmm. substantive. And so uh, we, we keeping in mind that now, if this is a state-by-state -state reality, the, these these laws could actually be pushed state-by-state-by-state uh, state state to actually become even more extreme. So we, we have not just the battle of laws, though that exists, and I, I think it's important for us to acknowledge this, that, uh, that changing laws does matter. Uh, but now we have to change minds. Mm -hmm. And so what are some ways that you think we can change minds to put the value of the unborn back into the conversation in, in our culture? 
Well, I actually want to start first with the minds of those of us who consider ourselves pro-life and please, identify please. as pro-life. Yeah. Because one of the things that I've found even just in the in the wake of the leak is that a lot of pro-life people, because, because we've never had the opportunity to change the laws, right? Roe was the law of the land. I mean, both sides, I think, have become sort of complacent um, in the status quo. We actually have to think about how we apply our pro-life ethic, not just in general, but even in, in the kinds of, of difficult circumstances that the law will have to take into account. So for example, um, we need to learn the difference between, um, between intervening in the case of an ectopic pregnancy, which is right. going to be fatal to both mother and child, and an abortion. Right. I mean, we don't even have nuanced ways of thinking about the difference between um, developing laws that do what, you know, what the Hippocratic Oath has required for all these thousands of years, which is to do no harm right. and to do all we can to save both lives and to not institute laws that would put either life in jeopardy. That's one thing we have to wrap our mind around. And another thing is just um, to simply become um, versed in the kinds of, of um, state level politics that right. are required to, to address the changes that we would want to see in all of our states. And again, I, I think just I'm seeing that that the pro-life position has been almost assumed or de facto within the church community for 50 years without us really having to think about how to change the law because we haven't had the opportunity that we're going to have to educate ourselves quickly um, and thoughtfully and not just rush to put legislation in place that would be you know, disastrous or uninformed or um, medically irresponsible. Um, of course, we want all of these laws to protect all of the human lives involved. Um, but that's not something that happens quickly and overnight. Uh, we have to really understand what it means to be pro-life and how to apply that in principle. Yeah, in a sense, this is a restart of the pro-life yeah, movement. I mean, it's right. a whole different phase and stage. I want to come back to the, something you said about um, all life. And I think that, mm -hmm. so So if I could process with you something, we haven't talked about this, but but um, I really believe in a holistic pro-life ethic. I know you do as well. Um, from the womb to the tomb, mm -hmm. um, people are made in the image of God, worthy of dignity and respect. And I believe that impacts um, our view of, um, well, unwed mothers to so kind of close to the question at hand. Uh, but it also has to do with our view of immigrants and refugees. It has to do right. with our view of people who are um, of different black backgrounds, beliefs, and religions. And I would historically say something to the effect of, actually, I'm looking at an article I wrote in Vox a few years ago, being pro-life means caring about all of human life, which I would mm -hmm. say true. That includes being pro-refugee. That's I didn't pick the title, but they did. And I was writing an article advocating for refugee resettlement and engagement, which I still believe. I do think that for a lot of people right now, they're particularly people who want to be pro-life, but are maybe unsure how to advocate for the unborn. And I want you to reflect on this with me, and you can tell me I'm wrong. But being sort of, every time someone says, we've got to work towards protecting the unborn, and the response is, well, we've got to protect all of human life, we've got to protect this, it sounds a little bit like all lives matter when responding to uh, Black Lives Matter, uh, because yes, we do, uh, but the reality is, we've, and we've got to work, and again, I've written on immigrants and refugees, and you and I have been in the same space on some of these issues, at the same time, I, I don't think we want to diminish the fact that we have substantive work to do in advocating for the unborn to be seen as, again, 
made in the image of God, worthy of dignity and respect. So how do I simultaneously, or how would you suggest we simultaneously advocate for a, a whole life holistic approach and also advocate for the unborn? Hmm. That's such a good question. And of course, there are there are policies that have indirect consequences on human life and or have consequences on the quality of life. And those are important issues. But when we're talking about abortion, we're talking about a law or hopefully the, the lack of a law um, that allows for the direct killing of an innocent unborn child. And so there is kind of a hierarchy, I think, of 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 um, of needs and of, of issues to to address. And so we know that abortion on demand takes the life of an innocent child and that that is unjust. And so that is kind of a priority, uh, just as we would say that Black Lives Matters is more of a priority than All Lives Matters because there is a vulnerable population who's who it needs justice now. Um, and it's the same, the same is true with the unborn. But we must also think about why we think that innocent unborn children's lives should be protected. It is because they are made in the image of God. Well, so are the lives of immigrant, immigrants, refugees, and others who might be inconvenient to us. Um, and so it's not that those their lives may not be in immediate physical danger, although often they are, but if we are going to oppose the taking of, uh, of innocent unborn life, because that life is made in the image of God, then we do need to be prepared to think about policies, other policies, yeah. in ways that protect those other image bearers. Yeah, and I, th I think it's key, too, that that where the image bearer question is, well, under question, mm -hmm. um, when people, we heard people talk about, you know, immigrants and refugees in dismissive and dehumanizing ways, uh, that would be the place and the space. So I think we can, we can acknowledge, I mean, that people don't question whether the lives of all different kinds of people matter. It's when certain kinds of people are vulnerable. And right. certainly that is the case to be made for the the unborn. So, um, you know, we, we actually, for example, we Sanctity of Life Sunday is on so many churches calendar and it's around row. Uh, and, and so this changes how mm -hmm. we move forward uh, and how churches can engage. So what is what is your hope for what churches, because again, our, our audience here is pastors and church leaders. What is your hope? What will churches do now regarding uh, the unborn? And and again, help us too, because I think it's going to be different probably in Virginia mm -hmm. than it is in Illinois and California than it is in Oklahoma. So, so talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, we sh we still need to have these Sanctity of Human Life Sundays. We still will need to have crisis pregnancy centers. We still will need to support women making these decisions. Um, I think that there's just so much more power and possibility in, in these opportunities because we have the chance not only to save the lives immediately in front of us, but we also, and we also have the opportunity to change people's minds and to enlarge their imagination and as we do that, then the laws will follow. So before we were meeting these needs, sort of knowing or, or maybe, you know, at least accepting the fact that that choice would always be there or, you know, was certainly at the time and would be for a time. But now we have the chance to really, you know, the rubber is meeting the road. Yeah. So if we can prove, if we can show that we as a church, <coughs> excuse me, we as a community actually can help women in, in excuse me, it's allergy season here. No worries. In Virginia. Um, 
if we can show that we can make a difference in the lives of women and children, then that can actually be more effective in changing the laws so that the law too will protect them and serve them. Yeah. So the, the, the legal change, mm-hmm. and I'll just be, be blunt, Roe v. Wade's change does nothing in Illinois. Uh, mm-hmm. does does nothing in California, does nothing mm-hmm. in New York State, right. some of our most populous states. And so we still have work to do mm-hmm. to change hearts and minds. I've heard people talk about making uh, abortion unthinkable. Um, but that is a, has to be a holistic approach in the life in the church of church and ministries. I'm actually of the view that we may need to be more engaged and more involved mm-hmm. in crisis pregnancy centers. We need to be more engaged and more involved in advocacy for life at the state level, knowing that that this is going to be an uphill battle. And well, again, it's different in different states, but regardless of what state you're in, I, th- I think this moment is a key moment for churches to step up and partnering with these kinds of pregnancy centers. We're actually going to have in an upcoming podcast uh, specifically to address how and why we should do that. Um, so, so as, I mean, pastors and church leaders, how do they teach, preach? Because again, that's my audience here is church leaders. How do they teach and preach on this issue, it seems that um, it's still interesting because people say, well, you go political when you talk about these things. Well, I, I, I guess that's what people say when I spoke up for refugees, and that's what people say when I, you spoke, speak up for whoever. There are certainly political ramifications. So how is a—I know, I know you're not a pastor. You're, uh, you're, 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 I don't, you're, you're like seven things, but you don't <laughs> describe yourself in that, in that context as a pastor. But talk to pastors for just a moment, and how do those pastors— communicate and church leaders in general, staff, Bible study leaders about these issues now going forward? Well, I, I, that's an important question. And because I'm actually a professor and I spend a lot of time with younger people and in particular younger Christians, because I teach in a Christian context, pastors need to know that young people um, in survey after survey, young people in the church still are just as um, pro-life as they have been for decades. That's something that even as they develop, tend to develop more progressive views, um, the pro-life issue remains pretty constant. However, um, I think that young people are also becoming disillusioned, um, well, for a number of reasons, but one area of disillusionment is what they see as the hypocrisy of the church or the inconsistency of the church in, in proclaiming to be pro-life and yet not applying it to other issues. So again, right. I'm not saying we have to address every single issue every single right. Sunday all the time, but we need to show the principles, the biblical principles and the, so, you know, the application of those in our society that undergird the pro-life position in such a way um, that the next generation see that we're not, that this doesn't arise out of just a hatred of women or disdain for sex or judgment of people who are get caught in these situations, but because we really do uphold the image of God in all human beings across the board, that is what will speak to them. And that is what the Bible speaks to. We've seen this before. The church had to grapple with slavery. The church has had to grapple with, you know, uh, with violence toward indigenous peoples. We have not passed a lot of those tests, but here we have another chance um, to take a test about our beliefs about human life. And again, we won't pass the test with just answering one question correctly. We have to answer most of them correctly. I love that. I love that. And it's just so no one hears and thinks we're, there's distance between us on this issue. My, my concern is, is that the pro-life terminology 
which meant something very clearly 15, 20 years ago, mm-hmm. could be applied to everything. But I want to say that I think we should be holistically mm-hmm. caring about women and men in every form, in every stage, in every place of regarding life. So I think we're definitely on those. And I think it, I think it's jarring to people when the only time they hear us speaking up for the vulnerable and the marginalized is when mm-hmm. they're unborn. Now, now, let me say this. We, we both know that that is also can be a bit of a an untrue talking point. We, right, you know, we could right. talk about our Catholic friends. You know, that's the largest social service agency uh, outside mm-hmm. of government in, in the country and deeply convictionally pro-life. Right. And you go around this, go see the evangelical churches who are serving the poor and the hurting and single moms and mm-hmm. ho- homes for, for, for persons with disabilities or whatever, a thousand things. Um, but... I would say, I, I, so I'm going to sound like I'm defending it, but at the same time, I'd say there is some reality that we can't let this be the only issue we're known for. But I still think for some, this needs to be an issue we need to be be known for. This this mm-hmm. is something that I want to stand up and stand out right. and say the unborn, it really does matter. So so come back to the teaching and preaching question though. So how do I how do I do that? Is is a how, how do I communicate? I mean, right now we think in terms of one Sunday tied to Roe v. Wade. Now that's not mm-hmm. the same emphasis. Uh, what does it look like? Mm. Give. I mean, again, you teach at Southeastern Seminary. You're coming to teach for us. We're excited to have you once um, and and our demon program. But but so you're talking to people preparing for pastoral ministry. So someone in the hand, someone in the class raises their hand and says, "How do I?" do this in a way that I help persuade my congregation to value life? Well, again, with Roe versus Wade being out of the way, then we actually don't have to worry about the politics as much, at least not in in that respect. So again, I think in, in, mo- in my experience, most Sanctity of Human Life Sundays are focused on our local um, pregnancy help centers. Right, so, same with us. Yeah, yeah those are still, still, they will still be needed. They will be needed even more. Um, and also I think in just simply um, giving voice to the women and men who have been in these situations, um, and who, you know, regardless of the decision that they've made, there are women who have had abortions and regret them. There are men who've been impl- complicit in abortions and who have regretted that. There are women who who didn't choose abortion but had to fight against many obstacles in their circumstances that, that maybe we could have offered more support to. So I think just simply enlarging our understanding of what is in, involved in these decisions and supporting the people who are making them and, and through that that, of course, we will still have to um, address our state laws um, and and our, our state legislators. And so it may we may, may not be concerned with Roe anymore, but we will be concerned, as you said before, with 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 our own states and our own communities. Um, and this is, you know, this is the issue of our time. Um, it's not the only issue, sure. but the, the church has existed for 2000 years. And Every culture is different. Every culture has different forms of injustice that it is um, steeped in. And so I agree with you that this is an issue we have to speak up about. We have to be engaged in it because it is one that is so, um, so part of our culture that the church has to, has to stand out from it. Um, You know, Lord willing, a hundred years from now, this one will be resolved, but there will be others. And so the church of that time uh, will have to address whatever those, those issues are. And so, um, so 
they, the issues do change, but the church's yeah. mission to proclaim the truth in whatever culture we find ourselves doesn't. Yeah, it's a, it's a defining issue for our day, for sure. Okay, so um, one of the things that we've, we've talked about over the years um, is the challenge of persuasion, for particularly for encouraging, um, encouraging women to choose life. And because, because you know, right now some people think, well, Roe v. Wade's overturned. That's not an issue anymore. Well, then again, you're not aware of the now the patchwork situation. So, people, Christians have taken pro-life advocates have taken different approaches. Uh, some have seemed to be counterproductive. Some have seemed because because again, we're still again. I'm I'm in Illinois. Mm -hmm. People are still making choices around abortion. Mm -hmm. um, so, in a place like Illinois, how and lots of other places uh, around the country, how do we help uh, women serve uh, pregnant women, maybe in a crisis pregnancy, mm -hmm. uh, how do we help persuade uh, in those contexts? So mm -hmm. talk to us about, because I think, you know, we, we want we deeply care about the unborn child. We deeply care about the, the mom in crisis as well. How do we engage the mom? What are healthy Christian ways to do so? Well, I, I actually think that we should, we should engage, um, these issues long before they happen. Of course, yep. no one would disagree with that. But we do have to keep in mind that even if we live, if, if you live in a state where the law, you know, abortion is completely outlawed, um, it's very easy for anyone to travel to another state. So even as we work state by state to change the laws, women are going to be able to go to other places until all those laws reflect, um, you know, a, an understanding of, of the sanctity of human life. And there are also increasingly medical abortions that don't even involve a, a clinic um, that women can just simply mail order pills and get an abortion at home. So the picture has really changed since Roe versus Wade. And we have to take that into account. And I think it begins with teaching young men and young women when they are, you know, still teenagers, um, that human life is not only sacred, but that they are part of a community that would welcome new life, no matter what the difficulty of the circumstances are so that even before a crisis occurs, these young people know they are part of a supportive community um, that will help them and that values life even more than all of the um, costs of the inconveniences that come. Um, I think, for example, of of you know, people in my own family who long ago had been threatened if they ever got found themselves in trouble or in these circumstances, they would be disowned. I mean, I, you know, I, I think some things have changed, but there are still young people who feel that way in, in their families, that they could never come to the church or come to their families in trouble. We have to make sure that that message is not sent out at all. And when a woman is in that situation, um, again, it has to be, um, she has to feel safe. She has to know that she will get help and support. Um, and we can do that in our churches, but not all of the women, we certainly do have women in churches who are getting abortions, but not all of them are. And so we also have to support those kinds of efforts in our community outside the church, because we yeah. love all of the children, whether they are, their mothers are in the church or not. Yeah. And let, so let's, we talked about mothers. Um, let's talk about fathers. Let's talk about, uh, I guess, young men or men. Um, it's been interesting because I see in some of this debate, somebody, uh, I saw a tweet that some person who was saying, you know, well, let's talk about these young, they, sh they should be responsible. They should be held accountable. And 
I think they were trying to make the argument that that uh, that that's not what the pro-life community thinks. And I'm like, let's do it. I mean, that's we're 100 percent that there's a responsibility here. It's not a not a not this young woman's or woman's responsibility. It's there's partners here. So talk to us. How do we how do we speak into the situation with men who in some places, I mean, we see different responses. Sometimes pressure uh, a woman into an abortion. Mm-hmm. Sometimes step away and aren't responsible. What are things we need to advocate around that, both in the church and in society, mm-hmm. maybe even through laws on the outside? Talk to us about that. Yeah, I mean, there are so many ways that we just don't even think about. So, for example, when a woman um, finds out that she is pregnant, whether that is, you know, um, at home or in her doctor's office or at a clinic, um, the the they should immediately be trying to bring into the situation, the man to find, you know, if it's an abusive situation, um, they should be asking about that and trying to protect the woman. If it's not, if it's a loving situation, then that man should be called to account. There are so many, if, if, if we just basically begin with the premise that the unborn child is a child, just as a born one is, uh, when we have you know, when we have um, child support and um, alimony and all those things in a situation where the the parents are not together, we can do the same things in an abortion situation. Um, it just simply requires us acknowledging um, the reality that this is a child. And so men should be held to account. Um, they should be responsible. Um, they should be brought into the picture in whatever way is warranted by the situation, um, whether he is, you know, a, 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 not a criminal, um, not an abuser. Um, there, there are other kinds of accountability that should be required then. But if, if it's just a normal situation and, and the couple is struggling, then the man needs to be brought into the picture as well. It should not all be borne by the woman. And let's let's talk some about why America. Yeah, you know, we talked about in the eighties uh, when you and I were at the the same event. Um, from the eighties until today, abortion, as you as you mentioned, is one out of three abortions declining. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, depending on how you read the poll numbers, you know, I used to be a pollster. Depending on how you read the poll numbers, is America pro life? Is 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 America not want to overturn Roe? I mean, there's all kinds of ways to ask the question, but the number of abortions has been declining. Mm-hmm. Why? What What do you see is going on there, and what does that mean for the future? Well, there are lots of different interpretations of that, and so and and I think probably all of the factors are true. For there, abortions are declining in part because unintended pregnancies are declining in part. Unintended pregnancies are declining in part. Um, some would say because of birth control and and um, sex education that may be part of it. Some would say because of policies that were enacted under Democratic presidents. Some would say policies enacted under Republican presidents. There are different statistics that you can find for those, but there's also so, I, I mean, I think we are at the waning end of the sexual revolution. I don't, you know, unintended pre- pregnancies are are on decline in the decline because young people um, are not having as much sex as they were in the 70s and 80s and even the 90s. Now, part of that is because of technology. I mean, they're they're spending more time on social media and, you know, at home, um, having relationships through, you know, digital media and not driving and getting their licenses as early. So there are lots of sociological factors for that. And I don't think every single one of them is necessarily a good development. Um, but the reality is, um, I think, 
Um, and this is something that that is more based on my um, interactions with with young people. They have seen so much divorce. They have seen so much um, disruption of families um, and so much of the fallout um, from the sexual revolution and from um, no fault divorce that I think that they are more hesitant. They are, they are approaching relationships with much more intentionality and maybe much more fear um, than previous generations. And so that's having an impact on the abortion rates. So this is an example, really, it's a, it's a roundabout way of talking about it, but this is an example of how we can't really treat abortion as an issue in isolation because it has to do with what we believe about sexual ethics and what we believe about marriage and what we believe about, about family. Um, and, and it's all of those things um, together. And so as a church, who is better, you know, the church is the best equipped to, to address all of these issues. Or should what be. Do you, I think so, and we work just work still to do. Um, so Sunday's coming, and um, pastors and churches are going to have to determine how to articulate. I, I, I think, I hope that a lot of pastors and churches will speak at into this moment. Uh, I, I, I plan to, um, and so I guess the question for for for, for you is is what words do we use to describe our reaction to this moment? Are there words like thankful? Are there words like uh, stepping into the next phase? Are there words, what, what words would you use to describe this moment that might help pastors and church leaders think about how to communicate their words? I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind is rolling up our sleeves um, because yes, there's something to be thankful for, um, hugely thankful for, but it really is just the beginning of a new opportunity for the church to, uh, to address this issue in, in a meaningful way. Um, and again, we will now have to, we, we can't just, um, throw up our hands and, and because Roe is the law of the land. Now we have the opportunity to not only change the laws, but to really influence the people who are going to, um, eventually change the laws. And those are the people who are facing these decisions right now. It's a time for us to, uh, to advocate. It's time for us to care. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a time for us to roll up our sleeves. Uh, Karen Swallow Pryor, thank you for joining us here on this Tetzer Church Leaders podcast. We've linked to some resources at the show notes for this page, and you can find all that at churchleaders.com slash podcast. And Lots of other podcasts there as well, but we hope this podcast has been particularly helpful for you in this timely moment. Let me exhort you that it's going to be a loud few days. Um, matter of fact, let me ask you one more question because I think people are, for a lot of people who don't share maybe our pro life mm -hmm. views, they're afraid. They're afraid of some dystopian future. Mm -hmm. We've seen, you know, Handmaid's Tale and all these sorts of things. And you're, I mean, you've, you know, our comments on this have been yours in the New York Times, mine in USA Today, um, and we see the backlash. I mean, you trended on Twitter, and not nationally, certainly nationally, uh, maybe beyond uh, when you spoke up on pro-life issues in the New York Times. How do we talk to people who are afraid of what this means? How, how do we how do we speak into their their fear and maybe concern? And at the same time, you know, advocate for the unborn. Is there a way to do that? 
That is such a good question. And, uh, you know, I think that there, you know, even, even as there are different um, sort of postures and attitudes within the pro-life movement, the same is true of, of the pro-choice advocates. There are some who just want to shout their abortions and want to celebrate their abortions and are unapologetic, but that's not the majority. I mean, most people still in their hearts and in their minds, they believe that abortion is, is an unfortunate kind of circumstance. And I think that if we can find common ground on that. If we, if we, if they can understand that we actually do care, um, that we aren't here to impose our views on, on women and oppress women, um, and take away the rights of bodily autonomy in, in other regards, because unfortunately there is a history where that has been done, um, to many people and not over the issue of abortion, but over just basic human freedom. Um, I think we just have to be, we have to embody what we say we believe, which is not about oppressing people. It's not about stripping people from freedom. It's about a, a love of human life and a love of human flourishing and a desire to see all human beings you know, live as long as they can because they do bear the image of God. And if we really believe that, then that will come out in our posture and our words and our attitudes, even in the face of this anger and fear and hostility. Karen Swallowpar, thanks for your over three decades of advocacy in this space. Let's roll up our sleeves. You've been listening to Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor. You can learn more about her at karenswallowpryor.com. You can find more interviews with the Sets of Church Leaders podcast, as well as other great content for ministry leaders at churchleaders.com slash podcast. And don't forget, you can check out extended portions of some of our interviews at churchleaders.com slash plus. If you found our conversation today helpful, we'd love for you to take a few moments, leave us a review. That'll help other ministry leaders find us and benefit from our content. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in the next episode. You've been listening to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast. For more great interviews, as well as articles, videos, and free resources, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.